Welcome to the Old Bridge Baptist Church podcast. We hope you find the following sermon to be edifying for your walk with the Lord. If you have any questions or feedback, please feel free to reach out to us on our Facebook page. You can also visit our website at obb.church for more info. Now here's the sermon. Thanks, Harry, and good morning to all. It is good to be back with you today, and I especially appreciated the choice of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel as the hymn. This does a couple of things. Um, First of all, in our drive up today from Langhorn, um, Harrison, our nephew, was in the car with us, and we were having a conversation with him. He slept over last night, Um, and the conversation had to do with somehow he was talking about singing Christmas songs. And I informed him, Harrison, it is the middle of summer. We do not sing Christmas songs now. So I was proved wrong already. And that is, I would say, an important theme of, my, of Job 28 and my message today. So that's actually good. Um, o come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, thou wisdom from on high. Then says, to us the path of knowledge show and cause us in her ways to go to. So those, those lyrics, I think, are very appropriate to us, the path of knowledge show. That is our theme for the day, searching and seeking for wisdom from Job 28. What I will be doing is reading through all of Job 28 um, in pieces. We've already heard much of it. And Job is a book that I happen to be spending some extra time in this summer. I have... Uh, on my schedule sometime in the next year, the opportunity to teach uh, a graduate class just in the book of Job. So we'll get to spend 15 weeks in the book of Job, so I've been thinking about it a little bit more. I regularly teach the book, but I was thinking, and I don't know that I've ever preached on it, maybe a while ago, but Job 28 is a passage that is really at the center of the book in many ways. I will give us a brief introduction just to get us um, oriented to the book of Job in this chapter. I'll refer to some key things. Obviously, the book of Job is a very long and very complex book, and there's a lot there, and I will not be able to cover it all as much as I wish I could this morning. But Job 28, um, where are we in the book? We are in a place where Job and his three friends have been debating for a long time, all right? Um, one commentator says, well, their debate, it just goes on and on. It just seems like for some of us as readers, this is kind of tedious and boring and it's getting nowhere. And one commentator suggests maybe that's intentional that we feel that. Hearing them going back and forth because they find no resolution. The debate is over. Why is Job suffering so badly? The friends claim to have wisdom and knowledge of Job's situation, and they say, you have sinned, and you have sinned in a really big way, and that's why you're suffering. Job says, no, there's no big sin that would explain why I'm suffering so badly here. None of them can find resolution. After Job 28, Job himself will finish his speeches, and then Elihu comes along and claims to have wisdom, I am doubtful that he adds clarity to the book, a resolution. The one who finally does add resolution or brings it to resolution is when God appears. 
and he answers out of the, the whirlwind. Again, I won't be able to talk about that, but that's where we're, we're, we're right in the middle of the book, and Job 28 is, is well known as a wisdom poem that addresses this subject of wisdom and teaches us, and I think um, helps us to understand the characters of the book and where they're coming from and why they're missing out and, and, and why Job and his friends are just really talking past each other. They're not listening to the others. Um, they're not finding any resolution. And the three friends have stopped at this point. So that gives us, and I'll, I'll mention a number of things in the context of the chapter, but that, that brings us to Job 28. So I, I don't want to spend any more time. I want to dig right into it so that we have the opportunity to, um, to really reflect on this. There's a lot here. I want to reflect on it and, and say what is relevant here for us today, because I am convinced that there is much that is relevant here. I'm going to read through the first section. Uh, so Job 28, 1 through 11, that we didn't read earlier, and that's fine, um, has, um, you may start reading it and say, what does this have to do with wisdom? What is going on here? But I want to make sure that we see the connections between the parts of this poem. So let me read. Job 28, verse 1. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. All right, so it's talking about a literal mine under the ground where silver and gold are found. All right, that's what we're talking about in this section. Iron is taken out of the earth, and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the, furthest, the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They're forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. So the picture we're getting is of mankind digging under the earth and even going down in ropes and swinging there um, in order to find, to this point, valuable metals that can be brought out of the earth and made use of. Or in the case of gold, it looks very pretty and therefore we consider it valuable. Verse 5, as for the earth... Out of it comes bread, but underneath it, it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it has the dust of gold. So also there are precious stones that can be dug up, and they also are considered valuable. Verse 7, that path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. That path, digging underground, bringing out these precious materials from the earth that some are useful or beautiful in our eyes and considered valuable for us, the animals have not done this. So we as humans have, um, have attained more than them in, in what, we were able, what we are able to do. The birds, the, the beasts, the lions can't do that. Verse 9, Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. So how much we dig. He cuts out channels in the rocks and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. So what does this describe? Really the um, really determined, diligent, even strenuous effort that is made in order to bring valuable things out of the earth that humankind has done now for millennia. Right? 
What does this have to do? Aren't we talking about wisdom? What does this have to do with wisdom? The, the connections will be made in the next section when we get there, but this should make us pause and consider how much effort are we putting into getting things like that? How much effort do we, do we Christians even, put into getting things like that? Even if we're not literally digging under the ground to get them, how much of our effort in this life is to these things that are fleeting? And while they may look pretty to our eye, how valuable are they really and truly? So see how that connects to our next section that is then going to be introduced by this, but where shall wisdom be found? All right, so man seeks out diligently these precious metals and precious stones. What about wisdom? And so that's the consideration. So keep this mining imagery in mind as we continue on. Verse 12, but where shall wisdom be found? Where is the place of understanding? So that, that's the real question then of the chapter. What is this search for wisdom, what does it look like? How can it be successful? Verse 13, man does not know its worth. It is not found in the, the land of the living. The elusive nature of wisdom, the difficulty in finding it is going to be highlighted. So it, you thought it was difficult to find that silver and gold and the precious stones that are under the ground that you have to dig. In the same way, or even in a greater way, it is difficult to find wisdom. And then the other key thing that we'll get to as I read that you'll see is, what is more valuable in our eyes? The gold, silver, precious stones that you find under the ground, or wisdom? The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. One way to consider this is the, the, the sea and the deep are personified. It's not in us. Don't think that you can dive deep enough under the sea and find wisdom, that it's just going to be there in a little package. All right. Um, one thing that we can see as I continue to read through here is that there is no shortcut to finding wisdom. Oh, if we just dive under the sea and find this little spot, that's where it is. No, that's not how it works. There's no shortcut. Then what can you do? Verse 15, it cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it nor can it be valued in pure gold. So that long list of those precious metals, precious jewels, here's what you can't do. You, even if you go through that search in the first 11 verses and find all those things, you can't take those and buy wisdom with them. Again, there's no shortcut. You can't buy it. You can't just get it bundled up in a nice, neat package. Oh, here I have it because I paid money for it. The other thing, maybe even more important for us to consider is Wisdom is more valuable than any of those things. And that's the challenge for us. It's one of the challenges in this chapter. Do we as Christians even today actually consider wisdom more valuable than all these other things that are listed? Are we, 
as we, as I develop this um, and try to bring this out, are we searching and seeking for wisdom with more, even more diligence, with even more effort as we would seek out these other things in the first 11 verses, the gold, the silver, the valuable metals and precious stones. Is that what we're doing? Do we recognize it? Let me finish this section, verse 20. From where then does wisdom come? Where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. We've talked about them. The birds of the air can't see underground to see the actual gold and silver and get it. Consider the birds of the air as they fly high above. They can see much more. They have a better vantage point. They can even see more than us, but it's even hidden from them. And then again, personified Abaddon and death say, we've heard a rumor of it with our ears, but they can't. Say, here is wisdom, and just hand it to us. Do we value wisdom as we should? Do we recognize its value, and do we seek it out? That is the challenge to me as I read this section of our poem. What is biblical wisdom? Um, a very simple definition is the ability to live life well. It, of course, is based on a belief in and a fear of the Lord. It is described in detail in the book of Proverbs, <clears throat> the ability to live life well. It is, <clears throat> excuse me, some of the water went down the wrong way. <clears throat> there we go. Only Jesus, only in Jesus, as a human, has it been perfected. And that's something for us to consider as we think about ourselves. We are not perfected in wisdom and knowledge. Um, and I'll come back to that, but it's, he is the only one to live this life perfectly. He was and is wisdom in the flesh. That's how the New Testament talks about him. So what does wisdom look like? Do we recognize it when we see it? Um, if we want to know what wisdom looks like, I would point us directly to the book of Proverbs that describes its characteristics, that describes how we should be dealing with all of the various circumstances in life in wisdom. I, I found, a, a, I think, a, a very good list that someone had compiled of the characteristics of the wise from the book of Proverbs. So I don't have time to go and read all of the Proverbs. I, I will read a few to us here and there. But here I thought was a really good list. What, does, what do the wise look like? What are they characterized by? So let me read through this. They are characterized, the wise person is characterized by kindness and mercy. The wise person is ever learning, always seeking knowledge and wisdom. The wise person is humble, self-controlled, diligent, righteous. They are people of integrity Therefore, they are trustworthy. They are discerning, slow to anger, slow to speak. And when they speak, they speak the truth. They accept criticism and desire peace. I read that list, and 
challenge us to consider what does the Bible picture the wise person to be? Because I think too often we forget. I don't think those who are considered necessarily wise by our the world, if I'm allowed to, are necessarily always meeting the biblical definition and description of the wise. We as Christians need to be discerning. It's on that list. Who is wise? And not just who is wise, because for each of us, there's a mixture of wisdom and folly. And I will highlight that. What am I listening to? Am I being discerning? Am I critiquing and questioning? Is that true wisdom from God? That is not an easy task, but it is one that we are, we are called to do. Do we value those characteristics? Who are we listening to? Proverbs 13.20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Who are we listening to? So we come to church and we get a 30-minute, might stretch a little longer than that, I don't know, 30-minute sermon from the Bible on Sunday morning. Who are we listening to the rest of the week? What are we hearing? What are we being influenced by? Because those people that we are listening to carefully and we're setting them up as, this is, this is someone I need to listen to, we, the Bible tells us we will become like them, right? And there are so many voices out there, and it's so easy to hear voices, right? Now, I mean, not hear voices in your head, but actually real voices. Um, I'm not crazy, I don't think, yet. Um, you know, whether we're watching on TV, listening to talk radio, um, on the internet, in social media, all the places that we can be hearing different perspectives. What is wisdom? What isn't? One thing that I have to say is, and just a real simple critique, um, evaluation. If you're listening to people and all they're doing is shouting each other down, interrupting and talking over each other, not listening to each other, you're probably not listening to wisdom. And how much of our discourse sounds like that today? I'm not going to listen to you because I already know the answer. I'm right, and I'm going to shout that louder, and I'm going to silence you. That's not wisdom. Wisdom listens. Wisdom considers. Wisdom engages in dialogue. And we Christians are being pulled more and more, because I see it and I hear it, into that very worldly discourse that's just shouting. You don't have to raise your voice, but it's not listening. It's speaking over others and saying, you have nothing of value for me. I'm going to tell you what's right. How often do we as Christians sound like that? And I think that's a... As I reflect on this poem, and I'll continue on to show us, uh, you know, where I think it's set, you know, it brings this out from the book of Job. Are we really seeking to understand others, to be discerning, to come to, to have reasoned discourse, where we hear each other out? That's hard to find. Notice the description of the fool. A fool takes no pleasure, these are all from Proverbs, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding, 
but only in expressing his opinion. I mean, that captures exactly what I'm saying. I'm going to give you my opinion. I don't care what you say. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. Fools give full vent to their rage, but the wise bring calm in the end. This is nothing new. We might have more formats where we can do this, but the Proverbs recognize fools have always been around and they do the same thing. They don't want to listen. They just want to speak. So what should we be hearing? It shouldn't be us saying, oh yeah, I know those people out there. It's how am I influenced by this? How do I fall into these errors? That's what we need to be considering What is more important to us as Christians, winning an argument or finding the truth? In our public discourse today, winning the argument is all that matters and the truth doesn't matter. Are we buying into that? Are we falling into that trap? Truth doesn't matter. I just want to win the argument. Social media postings are not designed, for the most part, to inform us. To give us truth, they're designed to influence us, and the truth doesn't matter there. Are we being discerning? Let me continue reading. In verse 23, so where, you know, the the question back in 12, verse 12, but where shall wisdom be found? And we on our own do not have access to it. That's what these, this, this, portion has shown us. We can't buy it, but do we value it and are we seeking it? Verse 23, God understands the way to it and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out, and he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. I'll start with the last verse there and say, be careful. Don't just read verse 28 and say, okay, I can forget about the first 27 verses of this poem. It's just the fear of the Lord, end of discussion. No, it begins in other places. Wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord, right? That's the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. It's something that is essential for us to be truly wise. But what does the wisdom search look like? In one way, I was picturing it this way as I thought about it. You know, as we've already read through this poem now and seen the search for the silver and gold, this second section that we just talked about said, you know, there's no shortcut to finding it. Here's the picture that I have. Um, If you think about an old Western movie where it's part of the gold rush or there's someone out at some stream panning for gold. Now, occasionally in the movie, I know, they pick up the giant chunk of gold. All right, you know. The normal way it would work is they'd be panning for gold and in the dirt and get rid of the dirt and the sand. Oh, there's a tiny little fleck of gold. So I pick that tiny little fleck of gold up and put it over here. And then I keep searching and I keep panning. Oh, there's another tiny little fleck of gold. And if you do that long enough, then you could accumulate enough that was valuable and worthwhile. But it's that type of accumulation of wisdom that I'm picturing. It's not going to be, oh, 
one day God just grants us all wisdom. Yes, um, the book of James says, you know, if we, if we need wisdom, we ask, and he gives it graciously. That doesn't mean he's going to give it miraculously all in one moment. And we might go through a long process of learning it, but if we are seeking it, he will give it to us. But that's how I picture it, a little bit here, a little bit there. Where is wisdom found? Verse 23, God understands the way to it. Verse 24, for he looks to the ends of the earth. Here's my answer. Where is wisdom found? Everywhere. Why does God have all wisdom? Why does he know all wisdom? Because he has all knowledge. He sees to the end of the earth. He was there from creation. So he is not limited by time or space. He knows everything, so he has all wisdom. We have the wisdom of God. Absolutely. Amen. But we do not have as much wisdom as God does. Our wisdom, and this is an important, important point that I see here, and it's not just taught here, our knowledge and our wisdom are partial. Paul says, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part, we have partial knowledge, and recognizing that limitation is a key for us as Christians to navigate life. Consider, let's think about it again, what about the book of Job? What is the problem with Job's friends? They claim we can look, Job, at your horrible, terrible suffering. You've lost your children, your servants, your livestock. You're sitting there scraping the boils of your skin with broken pottery. We see how badly you're suffering, and there is only one possible explanation. We know with certainty that you are being punished by God for some great heinous sin. I read the book of Job, and as a reader, I can say to the friends, you are completely wrong. Because I happen to have chapters 1 and 2, where we, the readers, are given the glimpse into heaven about what happened. Why is Job suffering? Because he was set up for a test as the most righteous man. He's actually suffering because of being the most righteous, not the sinner. But notice how that works. In the book of Job, we can see we are practically omniscient readers, if you, if you understand. We know what's really going on. We have the whole picture, and we see these human characters, Job and his friends, and we go, you guys don't know what you're talking about. Because Job's saying, God must have made a mistake. He thinks something is wrong. I want to talk to God about this because something, something isn't right. He doesn't understand. The three friends clearly don't understand. We know it's easy for us to see. But, but realize, who are we normally? We are normally in this life, not the ones who are omniscient, who have had this glimpse into heaven. We are normally in the shoes of Job's and his friends with partial knowledge, partial wisdom, which can be great. But recognizing the partial nature is what Job's friends were never willing to admit. They're never willing to admit, oh, maybe we have this wrong. Maybe there's more for us to learn. They knew decisively with certainty we can, under, we can explain what's happening to your Job. And that's why the, you know, the discourse between them breaks down. It gets nowhere. No one's willing to learn and to say, maybe I'm wrong. That's where we as Christians, I think, 
have a lot to learn or to apply in the area of, and, and this is, for me, what I observe is a, um, a type of Christian arrogance that we have all the answers, we know everything, we are all right, always right. People out there, they don't know anything, they're wrong. And we, we fall into that, that trap of being arrogant and prideful. Do we recognize that the wise are always seeking more wisdom? That is a characteristic of the wise. To know and to be wise is to recognize how much you don't know. An intelligent heart, Proverbs 18.15, an intelligent heart acquires knowledge and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Whenever we talk about the humble, I didn't read a verse that I wanted to, if I can see it here. When pride comes, then comes disgrace with the humble is wisdom. Humility is so often a, you know, pride used to be understood as one of the seven deadly sins. Does our world recognize pride in that way? Pride, being self-centered, being arrogant, thinking myself, I am always right. Humility, thinking of others first, recognizing our own limitations is the characteristic of a wise person, of a wise Christian. Who can we learn from? So here's an you know, example I just had from this past semester. I, um, I teach a senior level Bible elective in the book of Genesis. So we, are read we spend the whole semester in Genesis. So we're reading um, a lot of commentaries, a lot of journal articles, along with the book itself and discussing them. So each week, it's a, you know, before the students come to class, I assign them reading. So you have to read this article, this journal article, this commentary. And then we're going to come to class and we're going to talk about it. And I say, you know, I'm not, I don't agree with everything those writers say necessarily, but I'm going to learn from all of them and I'm going to come to class. And if you have questions, we can talk about those things, right? So, and each week they would write a response before coming to class to kind of start processing their reading. And, and, and I remember the week that one of my students says, I am upset that you made us read this journal article because it was published in the Catholic Biblical Quarterly, a Catholic scholarly publication. And we should not be reading that for this class. My response, see, what does that say? It says, and, and again, I've already set up the context. I'm not telling them they have to agree with all of that. It's something that we will talk about and some of it may be valuable insight. That student was saying, I know ahead of time there is nothing I can learn from reading this. That is the type of spiritual arrogance that I am talking about that we as Christians can have, whether we realize it or not. Can we learn from the other? I kind of said that in my response to his response. I don't know whether he got it. I said, if you, we're going to discuss this. You can learn from someone, even if you don't agree with them 100%, and that seemed to be missing in his way of thinking. Um, Jesus famously told the parable of the Good Samaritan. To his conversation partner, the Jewish expert in the law. Now, if you had asked that, he's called a lawyer, but he's an expert in the Old Testament law. If you had asked that Jewish lawyer ahead of time, could you ever learn something from a Samaritan? 
Of course not, right? The Samaritans are our hated rivals. They think they're the real worshipers of Yahweh, but we know that we are. They're wrong, we're right, I have nothing to learn from him. Jesus very provocatively and intentionally chooses the Samaritan and saying, look at that. That Samaritan can teach you something about fulfilling the law, love your neighbor as yourself. Intentionally, Jesus did that. Can we learn? And that's exactly what I'm talking about for us. We as an insular community can say, oh no, we have all the right ideas. We have all the knowledge we need. We have the Bible. That's sufficient. We don't need them. And we can't learn anything from them. The Bible is perfect and true, but the Bible does not contain all knowledge. Don't, don't make sure you're hearing what I'm saying. The Bible is not deficient. It's exactly what God intended it to be. It is completely true, but it is not complete knowledge. I used to, some of you know, be a, um, I used to teach math at the high school level. So I taught algebra. So would the parents and the students be happy if I said, okay, Go ahead and read the book of Genesis for homework this week, and I'm going to give you an algebra test on it. Right? We have to recognize the limitations of even the Bible. and what it, Because when we say we have the Bible and that's all we need, I know it has everything we need for, for life and spirituality and in our relationship with God, but there's more to life than that. And is there wisdom to be found outside? Wisdom is everywhere. That's why God has all wisdom and all knowledge, because he, he knows everything. So he is the only one who can claim that. The rest of us need to be humble and willing to learn is the message that I'm saying. Let me give you this example, and maybe this will, um, maybe you'll see it here. All right. Completely hypothetical. She's not going to like this. So uh, if Jody and I are having marital problems and you come to counsel me and I say here's the problem she's hundred percent wrong and I'm hundred percent right if she would just change completely there's nothing I have to do different or anything like that we would have marital bliss you would rightly say I don't think so I don't think it's that easy or that simple Life is more complicated. Our relationships, interpersonal relationships are more complicated than that. Am I willing, you know, you would say to me, maybe you need to look at yourself first. What could you be doing different? What are you doing wrong? What, could you, what do you need to apologize for and ask forgiveness? What, you know, what I'm saying is exactly that, just on a more general sense, in a broader scale. Consider we, the church, are we perfect? I hope you understand that the answer to that is no. Are we right? Sometimes. We are a fallible, we are made up of fallible humans, right? So we, the church, are a fallible institution. When we, the church, I'm speaking very broadly of the church, you know, whenever we engage the culture, sometimes it's from that place of arrogance and spiritual pride that we are right and you are wrong. Hear how many times Christians, Christian leaders even, are simply labeling their opponents as evil. And I have a problem with that for the most part. To label the opponent or the opposing idea as evil, what does it say? 
They are evil, therefore they are 100% wrong. What are we? We're the opposite of that. We are the righteous. We are 100% right. Are we willing to recognize all of us and as an institution that we have, we make mistakes, that we are wrong in ways? That is something that I don't hear in our discourse today. The willingness to admit we could be wrong in certain areas, and the church has been wrong. To me, this poem really challenges me. You know, who am I listening to? Who am I emulating? Do I recognize the value of wisdom? Do I, do I pursue that? Do I make that my highest pursuit? We've been in the Old Testament here in Job, and so I'm speaking in terms of wisdom. In the Old Testament, to become more and more wise is to become more and more like God, since he is completely wise and he has all wisdom. The analogy that we've already seen in our hymns and in, in what we've read is the New Testament, Jesus is perfectly wise. He is wisdom in the flesh. So as I say we are pursuing wisdom, that can translate into New Testament terms as pursuing Christ-likeness. If he is perfectly wise, all of what I'm talking about really becomes becoming more like Jesus, becoming Christ-like, and understanding the way he lived. And you know what? We're never going to be, this is the analogy, we're never going to be completely wise. That's what Job 28 said. We're never in this life going to be completely Christ-like. We are limited, recognizing our limitations, letting that humble us, but having the great hope and faith in Jesus, in his Father, in the Holy Spirit, who have all knowledge, who have all wisdom that we can trust in. That's our challenge and our hope. But recognizing we haven't arrived yet, we don't have all of that wisdom and all knowledge. We have much to learn. We can listen to others. Even when we disagree with most of what we're saying, maybe we'll understand them. Maybe we'll be able to talk to them better. Maybe we'll learn something from them like the surprised lawyer who learned from that story of the Good Samaritan. What can we learn from them? That's the challenge to me that comes from this chapter. Let me close us in prayer on that. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the wisdom that you so freely offer us. I pray that we would take that offer seriously, that we would recognize the great value and the wisdom that comes from you. Help us to be humble as a key characteristic of those who are wise and growing wiser, that we would recognize that we are not perfect. We, are not, we don't know it all. We don't have all the answers. That you would help us pursue that wisdom, find it from you, share it with those around us, that you might be glorified through our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Old Bridge Baptist Church. Please consider subscribing to our podcast on the platform that you're currently listening on. We appreciate your support and we hope you have a God-blessed day.